I'm here today to talk about the doctrines of grace, what they mean to me, and why you should avoid lawyers. Um, so just to start at the beginning, the, what are the doctrines of grace? And many of us have heard of the, the TULIP acronym, which is a helpful shorthand for remembering what those doctrines are. Um, and just to go through that, the T in TULIP stands for total depravity, which recognizes that our nature is to sin, to not love God, to not love love, and to not love one another. Uh, the human mind has the inability to believe in Christ on its own. If you look at John uh, chapter 6, verse 44, uh, Jesus said, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It's God that, who makes you want to believe and gives you the capacity to believe. Amen. If you look at verse 65, just moving further in that chapter, Jesus said, therefore, said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. So that's the T for total depravity. The U is for unconditional election. God's children are God's children. They don't have a choice in the matter one way or the other. Uh, Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 16, moving a little further Ahead, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So that's the U. The L in the TULIP acronym is for limited atonement. It means that God has saved particular persons through the atonement, or the at-one-ment with God reconciling those particular persons with himself. The limited means that he hasn't saved mankind in general. It doesn't reflect that the atonement for particular persons is limited in any way. Um, and, and Jesus recognized that, uh, or talked to some people who weren't saved in John uh, chapter 10, verse 26. And this reflects that not everybody is saved. Um, We go to John chapter 10, verse 26. Give me just a moment here. But, and he was talking to uh, some people who believe not. He said, Ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So that's the, the L for limited atonement. The I in the tool of doctrine is irresistible grace. If you're God's child, you can't avoid the grace of Jesus Christ, and you cannot not be saved by him. Again, you don't really have, you don't have any choice in the matter. Uh, and again, in, in the book of John, chapter 6, verse 44 to 45, Uh, Jesus said, no man can come to me except the father which hath sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the father cometh unto me. And so that's the uh, irresistible grace. You can't resist it. It, um, it is irresistible. 
And then finally, the P is for the preservation of the saints. Uh, If you're a child of God, you can't fall from grace. It doesn't matter what you do. You either are saved or you aren't. And once again, Jesus uh, spoke about this in the book of John, chapter 6, verses 37 to 39. Uh, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. So again, that's the preservation of the saints. That's the full TULIP uh, acronym reminding us what the doctrines of grace are. Uh, So what does that mean? Those, those are the doctrines. What does that mean to me? And what's the purpose of knowing about them? I think that the purpose, what it means to me, is that the salvation of my spirit isn't up to me. Uh, it's in any way. I can't do anything to be saved. I can't do anything to be unsaved. Salvation isn't a reward. It's a condition of being. And to me, that's good news. And it's Good news, because uh, if there's something I need to do to be saved, I have to will myself to obey God's law and to make myself acceptable in God's sight. And that's bad news because that's impossible. Um, It's impossible for a human on its own to obey God's law. And we know that because of the experience uh, with the law in the Old Testament. Um, Paul reflected on this in Romans chapter 7, verses uh, uh, 18 and 19. And he he said uh, that, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. And so it's impossible for the human flesh to obey God's law, and trying to do the impossible in order to save yourself is a curse. Um, Because that's an unachievable goal, uh, and it is a a desperate, unachievable goal. Uh, And Paul talked about this again in Galatians. Um, chapter 3, verse 10. Bear with me for just a moment. Uh, for as many are, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. So if you're under the law and you don't follow it, you're cursed. But you can't follow the law by trying. It's a paradox. You can't follow the law by trying yourself. With your human flesh, it's a paradox. Um, A person willing themselves to follow the law will actually wind up frustrating the law, the spirit of the law. Uh, and this is something that, uh, that Paul talks about, again, in Romans uh, chapter 9. 
verse uh, 30, 31 and 32. He says, But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it out, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. The stumbling stone is uh, attempting to will yourself through your human flesh to do the law, which is something that is not possible. And in fact, not only can the law not save you, it's the strength of sin. Uh, And Paul again talked about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 56 to 57. And he, he said that. He said, the strength, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. And that's, a, that's an interesting passage there. What does it mean that the strength of sin is the law? It doesn't mean that the law is bad. The law is obviously and objectively good. Um, but I think that one thing that that means is that the people who are presented with a set of rules and try to follow those rules out of a sense of duty instead of a sense of faith or acceptance or receiving, um, I think that people generally in that circumstance become lawyers. The human will, the human flesh, will try to find a legalistic way to minimize the impact of the rules, the rules that are imposed on you as a sense of duty, try to minimize the impact of that on what the human flesh otherwise wants to do. When somebody tells you, do this, it's your duty, if you're like me, you think, what are the boundaries of this duty? What isn't covered by this duty? How can I do what I want to do and still say that I'm doing my duty, still argue that I'm doing my duty? So where there's a rule that's established, it's the instinct, it's the, the nature of the human flesh to immediately try to find a way around it. Uh, and humans are very successful at doing that. And Jesus talked about this uh, in, in the book of Luke. He was talking to the teachers of the law who were called lawyers. Um, in Luke chapter 11, verse 46 Jesus said, Woe unto you also, ye lawyers, for ye lead men with burdens grievous to be borne, and ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. And again, going back to um, what I was saying about the strength of sin being the law, I think that part of that is that you can never make a rule that's going to make somebody moral or holy or good. God's law doesn't make people moral or holy or good. That's not the way that people work. People are moral or holy or good because of God's work in their hearts and nothing else. And in fact, applying God's law to human flesh reveals how a moral, unholy, and bad people are. 
It's like when Jesus healed a sick man on the Sabbath. In John chapter 5, the man hadn't been able to walk for 38 years. Jesus healed him. And the priests had a problem with that. They objected to it because it was against their moral law to do any work on the Sabbath, including healing the sick. But doesn't that miss the whole point? Isn't that a little absurd that healing the sick could be against God's law just because of the date? To me, that doesn't make sense. Um, I, I think that the priests were elevating their petty rules over God's law and over God. And because it's important, I think, that it's because Jesus didn't follow the priest's moral rule, that human interpretation of the law, which twisted the law, that the priest plotted to kill him. In John uh, chapter 5, verse 16... Uh, It reflects, therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. So it was by doing uh, God's work uh, in opposition to a human law that twisted God's law that uh, Jesus was persecuted and, uh, and, and hunted. So if a person can't do anything to save themselves, and when they try to do something, it's actually harmful, what can a person do? Um, I think, first, stop worrying. In uh, the book of Philippians, chapter 4, chapter four verse 6, um, Paul spoke about this. He said, be careful for nothing. Don't worry about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God so don't worry second you can pay attention to the unifying theme that Jesus identified as the essence of the law a unifying theme that can't be faked and that there's no workaround um Jesus identified this unifying theme in response to a trick question by another lawyer who was asking him, what was the great commandment? And Jesus responded that the two most important commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he told us that the whole of the law was in these two. That was Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Jesus said to the lawyer, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So love is the law. But there's no legalistic way to satisfy the requirement to love. Love can't be faked. You can pretend to love, um, but you can't actually love in response to a directive. It's not something that you can command yourself to do or will yourself to do. When you do love, that's not voluntary. It's evidence of God's work in you. 
And we know that in part from uh, 1 John chapter 4, uh, verses 7 to 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. So, uh, to wrap up, what's the point? I think that the point is that by trying to use your human flesh to do God's will out of a sense of duty, you're doomed to fail. It's a curse. You're simply not able to do God's will on your own. But it's important to recognize this, and it's good news to recognize that, because by knowing it, you can stop worrying. You can recognize that God's will isn't in your control, it's in God's control. And you can pay attention to the voice of God in your heart and not the voice of the lawyers. Thank you. You know, I was fortunate enough to grow up uh, as Primitive Baptist. Uh, When I was young, I didn't learn a lot. Like a lot of young kids, I came to church and we had a lot of young folks in the church in those days and I came to see my friends and to eat a good meal and basically I done what mom and dad said to do, get in the car and we're going to church. But my grandfather used to quote one verse to me and he quoted it this morning that I have never forgotten. No man can come to me except the father would send me draw him and I'll raise him up the last day. That verse is forever stuck with me in my life. We think about the salvation of God's people, and I'm going to try to move along to wherever I need to be. I need a clock here, I guess, so I don't try to use up too much time. I'll never get through everything I want, but we're told in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, there are three prophecies taught in that, cha- in that verse. For she shall bring forth a son. That's talking about the Virgin Mary. That, that prophecy has been fulfilled. The Immaculate Conception took place. Jesus Christ was born to the Virgin Mary, so that was the fulfillment. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. That was fulfilled also. And in the purpose and mind of God, for he shall save his people from their sins, it's just as good as done. In the purpose and mind of God, that's satisfied. If you ever need a verse to tell folks what you believe, quote that verse to them. It has nearly the complete entire doctrine of what we believe in. You know, it said it's his people. They were given to him by the Father. All that the Father giveth to me shall come to me. Those were the ones that came to him, not the ones that were willing to, that were unwilling. You know, I think about John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, being Jesus. His own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. There are folks out in the world say, there you are, all you got to do is believe. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Not who will come to believe, not who will be taught to believe. The believing began before uh, uh, they ever entered into the house of the Lord or entered into the presence of the minister. They were touched by the grace of God in their hearts. It enabled them to be able to believe. Whosoever believeth. 
But it says in Matthew 1 and 21, another point you need to always understand when you're studying God's Word, the shalls and the will of the Bible. When it says He shall save His people from their sins, I'm here to declare unto you that there's no possibility of failure in that verse. It cannot be, He cannot fail. He didn't come and make a down payment. He didn't come and grant us the opportunity to be saved. He come and He actually saved us from our sins from all eternity. And because of what He done, one day we're going to live with Him. But in verse 13 it says, which were born not of blood. That's in there because the Jews thought they had a corner on God in the Old Testament. No one else had a possibility of, of living in heaven with the Lord. And it says, who, uh, who were not born of blood, nor the will of the flesh. That's you. You wasn't born of the Spirit of God because you willed yourself to do so. It's not of the will of the flesh or the will of man. That takes away the preacher, the brother and sister in Christ, the father, the mother, anybody you want to talk about. But of God. Salvation is of the Lord. And the brother had it right there. That's what we need to remember. And, you know, a lot of people just believe that that's not fair. But, you know, honestly, I'm not sure if you understand it, it was fair that God saved anyone. We wasn't a lovable people, but God commendeth his love toward us when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly. He didn't die for those who straightened their act up, those who would get righteous and become righteous. If the Lord will let me spend just a little bit of time this morning, I want to begin in a verse, and actually there's two sermons in this verse, and I'm not going to get to much of one of them, but we read in the 11th Psalms in the third verse, if the foundations be destroyed... What can the righteous do? I want you to think about that verse first of all. It talks about multiple foundations. Those foundations are laid upon one foundation. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Other foundation can no man lay than that that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation. You build your churches upon the foundation of Christ. You build your marriage upon the foundation of Christ. You build your family upon the foundation of Christ. If you'll read the history, as Brother Steve uh, spoke to us in Lubbock last year, you'll find that the government of this country and its originality and its youth was built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as these foundations are destroyed, as we see marriage being destroyed, the family being destroyed, that's the foundations that we're talking about. And it's happening right before our very eyes. But I want to touch on the latter part. What can the righteous do? And we're told in 2 Timothy 2 and 15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. When you go to read God's word, If you don't study and understand the context, you're going to find conflict. And we'll get to that in just a minute. The the psalmist David here says, the righteous. Let's read just a few more verses in Psalms 37. You, You can spend the rest of the time this morning reading about the righteous. We're told in verse 16 of chapter 37 of Psalms, a little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked. Well, we were told, and we'll get over there in just a second, that there are none righteous. So we, we want to embrace who these folks are. It says, The Lord knoweth the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. In this chapter, and in most places, the upright are the righteous. And their inheritance is forever. So whoever is embraced in these, uh, these texts have an eternal inheritance according to this. Here's a verse down here that applies to me. Not to Brother Steve yet, but to me. I've been young. And I'm now old. 
Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. You know, I haven't seen that myself either. That was a statement that David made. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. Verse 39. But the salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. Whether it be a deliverance that took place here in life, as I believe God's hand touched these two young folks. Me and Brother Mark are very dear friends, and I call him up. I've been praying for them, and and I I agree. No doubt it was a miracle. It was very doubtful for Brother Jerry. But you see what happens in two weeks and being such an incident. Christ in you, the hope of glory, is a power that has the ability to do above and beyond and exceedingly above what we ever think or ask. If you're a child of God, you have something in you that other folks don't have, and it's a powerful thing. And we need to pray. I think sometimes we fail to pray. You know, I thought about a movie, and I can't even tell you the title. It was a Christian movie Movie I watched. And this family had an adopted daughter, and one of the family, I don't know if it was her, I can't remember, was in an accident, and, and the father went to this hospital. I'm sure some of you may remember this. You may know the name. Uh, but he went in next door into a room and there was an elderly black man laying in a bed. They began to talk and began to talk. And uh, this is kind of, of course, what I'm saying now, but I just thought about it. He said, uh, when he left the room, he told him what all was wrong with him. He, he said, uh, the man said that went in the room, said, I'll pray for you. Several weeks later, he came back. The first thing that man asked him in that room, did you pray for me? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever told anybody you'll pray for them and, and it slipped or you forgot? Uh, I have. We need to remember to pray for people because God answers prayer and and very thankful he's answered this prayer. We see the righteous and we see that there's a group of folks called the righteous and we as old Baptists, we understand that salvation is by grace and grace alone. We understand this. Over in Romans chapter 3, we get a great picture of what Paul said uh, is the state of nature of man. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 as it is written there is none righteous no not one and yet David said what can the righteous do if the foundations are being destroyed it's going to have a great effect upon the righteous when we can figure out who these righteous folks are and who's intended in in these very verses back in the Old Testament long before Christ came long before Christ died upon the, the cross of Calvary there's a group of folks declared to be the righteous But it says in verse uh, 10, as it's written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. These are direct quotes from the Old Testament. Psalms 14, Psalms 53. God looked down from heaven upon the children of man. See if there's any that did understand any that did seek God. Every one of them has gone back. Every one of them. They've all all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. We think about those things. He continues on. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And yet our text says, what shall the righteous do? What can the righteous do? Well, I'll give you a little hint here in case I don't get this in. The first thing we can do is boldly go to the throne of grace. I think that happened in the event of these two. These were righteous folks and they had righteous folks praying for him. Now I know that If you're like me, you you may not feel very righteous. But we're going to get to that in just a moment. It says that their throat is an open sepulcher. What does that mean? You remember when Jesus was going to call Lazarus out of the tomb, out of the sepulcher? And his sister said unto him, uh, 
He told them to remove the stone. They said, Lord, he, he, he's been dead for three or four days. He stinketh. Well, friends, that's how our throat is. That's how our words are. That's how our life is. It stinks in a state of nature. Paul said, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Why? They're foolishness unto him. Psalm 53 begins, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Friends, that's where we are in a state of nature. We don't desire God. We don't love God. And we will not come to God. No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him. We cannot come. We're told in John chapter, I believe it's John chapter 5, Jesus said, you will not come to me that you might have life. We cannot come and we will not come. And yet there are a bunch of folks declared in the word of God to be the righteous whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is none... There is no fear of God before their eyes. Think about this for just a moment. That's not a very pretty picture of a a human being in a state of nature. And yet the world tells us, the unlearned world, that we can call the fool out of darkness. We can train the fool to the point that he'll uh, ask for spiritual life or he'll, he'll be able to get spiritual life. But this is the condemnation that light is coming to the world. But men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They love darkness. Verse 4 says they cannot comprehend or attain the light. The light shineth in darkness, but they cannot apprehend it or attain it. We have no ability or strength to come to the light. We have to be drawn to the light by the almighty power of God. We're told in the 64th chapter of the book of Isaiah in the 6th verse... Uh, but we're all as an unclean thing. I want you to notice the word all in, all in this verse. But we're all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we do all fade as a leaf. Not some of us. All of us fade as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. We don't just a portion of us fade away. You know that's what the world would have you to believe. We all faded away in a state of nature. And if had God hadn't drawn us to himself, none of us would be there. You know, if we could have obtained righteousness by the keeping of the law, even in today's world, we would have had no need for Jesus Christ. Problem is, if we could straighten our act up today, we couldn't pay for one sin behind. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. As much as you desire not to sin today and to walk in the ways of the Lord It's going to happen. You're going to sin because of the lust of the flesh. Because of the war that's going on. The flesh lusteth against the spirit. And the spirit against the flesh. And these two are contrary one to the other. So that you cannot do the things that you would. I always found that interesting. I had to think about it a little while. Did you? If you're walking in the spirit, you will not please the flesh. If you're walking in the flesh, you will not please the spirit. It's pretty simple, really, when you get down to it. But this group, the righteous... We're going to get over here and, and, and try to keep this relatively short this morning. I want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, very familiar language. Who are the righteous? Well, they're not folks that were made righteous. I mean, folks that earn their own righteousness or obtained it by their work. It says in verse 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Jesus Christ was sinless. Jesus Christ is perfect. He is the Son of God. 
You know, Jesus Christ was eternal. He could not die. Man committed sin. Man must pay the penalty for that sin. God's law is holy and it's righteous. It demands perfection. That's why one sin will send you to heaven, a hell. You know, if it's not paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. I always thought about the sin spoken of over in James chapter 2. Uh, you know, if you're a respecter of persons, you commit a sin. That doesn't sound like a bad sin, and I don't know that I qualify it up with murder or adultery. But I'll tell you one thing I, about it I know. The blood of Jesus Christ had to cover that sin just like it did the others. Every sin has to be covered, not just some of them. Right. You and I can't even pay for that sin. For it hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. In the beginning was the Word, the eternal Word, the eternal Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning. All things were made by him, and without him there was not anything made that was made. For Jesus to pay for the sin of sinful man, he had to become a man. The Word was made flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Paul tells us of this same great truth in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. We were chosen Jesus before the foundation of the world. And we were seen through the blood of Jesus Christ. Or the blood that would happen when he went to the cross of Calvary as holy and without blame before him in love. Because God loved you with an everlasting love. Just like it was told of Jeremiah. I've loved thee with an everlasting love and with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Those that are drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ by God the Father were drawn out of his everlasting love. But we're blameless. Tell me if you were chosen in Christ. Some people say God chose all mankind. If he did, all mankind is going to be in heaven. But the Bible tells me there will be folks that are not in heaven. Because if he chose all to heaven, all will go to heaven because they're blameless. They're without blame. You know, I, got, I, I, I feel pretty blamed. I, a lot of blame could be laid on me. I don't feel blameless. But we're declared to be blameless. For he hath made him to be sin who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Friends, that's, that's, we're righteous. Only because of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been made righteous. Your sins were taken off of you. They were cast as far as the east is from the west. If you start walking east today, you'll never stop walking east. You won't begin to walk west. Think about it. It's an eternal number. It cannot be attained. You head east, you'll never stop going east. That's how far your sins have been removed and put away from you. They were nailed to the Son of God on the cross of Calvary. They were. They were taken away for good. He was made sin for you and his righteousness, which is perfect righteousness, was imputed to you. David said, what shall the righteous do or what can the righteous do? That's who he's talking about. Those that were chosen in Christ. In the eternal covenant. You know, we had, David had it right in 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 5. Although my house be not so with God. Friends, I'm telling you, that's a picture not only of David's house, but of the church today in a way. Even though the house of God may not be so with a lot of folks as it should be, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant. 
ordered in all things and sure. Do you understand there's nothing that's going to cause the Lord Jesus Christ not to accomplish what He came to do? David said, this is all my salvation and all my desire, even though He make it not to grow. The Lord knew who was going to heaven before time ever began. Their names were written in the Lamb's book of life. Our hands are engraved. Our names are engraved in the hand of the Lord. And we've been declared to be the righteous. What can the righteous do? I want to make, I want to get a little further on this for just a moment. Spend just a little bit of time when it comes to righteousness. John taught, uh, Lord Jesus Christ taught Nicodemus in John chapter 3 about the new birth. He said, verily, verily. Except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 3. And in verse 5, he says, Unless a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was very confused. A lot of people today are very confused. You know, Nicodemus just didn't understand how man could enter into his mother's womb again and be born again. But all that Jesus was teaching Nicodemus was... Just as you had nothing to do with your natural birth, you don't have anything to do with your spiritual birth. Later down there, uh, and Jesus said, Marvel not that I said you must be born again. But Nicodemus said, How can these things be so? Spiritual birth is something that it takes to understand spiritual things. That's when we're enabled to grow in grace and knowledge. But when we're born again of the Spirit of God and we get zeal... Uh, in our, our bodies. I've seen it in people and they come to the house of the Lord. We got to be careful, real careful that we don't fall into what I have labeled myself as the pit of self-righteousness. It's, it's easy to become self-righteous. You know, the, the harder you try to do the right thing, the, hard, the easier it is to see of all the wrong things you've done. And unfortunately, we can recognize that in other folks too. But we got to be real careful. In the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. I want to tell you something that he meant there. He didn't tell you not to judge right from wrong, good from evil. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about judging men and saying, I couldn't do what that man did. I'd never do what that sister done. Friends, you're walking on thin ice when you make that statement. Under the right circumstances, in the right place, there's not any sin that you and I are not unable or we, we wouldn't commit. If it wasn't for the restraining grace of God, I don't know what we would do. It's by the grace of God that we go. You know, some people say, if not for the grace of God, there go I. That's us. It could happen to us. But when we judge people in that manner, we're just saying we couldn't do the bad things they've done, but, but we could. And here's a great example of it. We'll get a couple of these and we'll close. Over in Luke chapter 18. And you're all very familiar with this. And we're going to read this out. And he spake, being Jesus, the parable unto a certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. I want you to understand, self-righteousness is not something that people out in the world hold. I'm going to tell you, there's plenty of self-righteousness in the old Baptist church today. I hate to say that. I love those brothers, but it's very easy to fall into the pit of self-righteousness. We've been declared righteous, but we've never evolved into a righteous perfection, and we want this life. We should strive to, to, to live righteously, to do the right thing. That's what that means. Not to do unrighteousness or the wrong thing, but we're never going to attain that in this life. 
There's coming a day when your body is fashioned like unto the glorious body of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this sin is, oh, sinful body is left behind. You're going to attain that, but not now. You're not going to evolve into a state of perfection where you don't sin anymore. You know, I, I was listening to a, a dear friend of mine, Elder Larry Webb, and he was talking about a time when he worked for many years with the trucking company. And he said he'd sit around in the break room and people make statements such as this. Used to when I sinned. Used to when I sinned. I tell you, be careful. Uh, he already told a lie right there and committed a sin. Used to when I sinned. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God and we're going to sin until we take our last breath. You know, some people say, well, I was doing real good and I got in my car running down the street and somebody cut me off and then I had a thought or two. You know, our thoughts are known of God just like our actions are. You know, if we commit sin in our heart, God knows it. You may not know it, but, but the Lord knows it. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. And the Pharisee stood off, and here's where he's talking about judge not that you be not judged. This Pharisee stood up and prayed with himself, uh, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men. He's already telling God, I thank you, I'm not as, that, as these other people. Now, I'm a lot better than they are. I mean, I've, I've really elevated myself in the kingdom of God, and I'm not like these other uh, people. He says that I'm not as other men or extortioners, unjust, adulterers. I mean, this, is, this man's laying out the, what, how good he is before the Lord and, and how much he's accomplished before Almighty God and, and how great he is. You know, this is, this is the ultimate self-righteousness. And he goes on and he says, or even as this publican, this poor publican, I fast twice this week. I give riches of all that I possess. Well, this is a proud man, and he's full of pride. He's full of self-righteousness. And, you know, most of us think we can never get that way. But I'm telling you, if you're not careful and guard against it, you can get that way. We can look at other folks and, and see that they've done wrong and, and think, oh, I just I couldn't possibly do what they did. But, friends, I'm telling you, we could. We really could. If we think that, we've fallen into the pit of self-righteousness. And we'll judge people. You see, what happens when we begin to judge wrongly, we, we judge against other people and we do not measure ourselves against the Lord Jesus Christ. When you measure yourself against the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll always come up short. You'll always see the sinner that you really are. You'll never fade to understand that. But when we start measuring ourselves against other men and brothers and sisters and, and neighbors and, and, and folks, we're missing the mark. That's what this man was doing. He wasn't measuring himself against the Lord. He was measuring himself against other folks. And he fall, fell real short. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful unto me a sinner. You know, there's never a time in our life, no matter how good we've done, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before Almighty God. He is pure. He is holy. He is right in all ways. He's never made a mistake. You and I stump our toe from time to time, and, and we continue to sin even when we don't want to sin. We have thoughts in our heart. It's amazing what sin has done to us. You know, I've, I've sat around at times in my life and wondered what it's going to be like for, for the Spirit of God that dwells in you, who you really are, your spirit and soul, flies from this body. And the sins left behind. Isn't that going to be in a, uh, an amazing day? I, I, you know, I think about all the purity in heaven. And we read about in chapter 21 of Revelations about there'll be no more sorrows. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more sleepless nights. There'll be no crying. There'll be no death. Uh, hallelujah. Look forward to that day, don't you? If you don't know anything else about heaven, you'll get enough over there to, want you, uh, to get you wanting to go there pretty quick. 
because the things of this life don't exist there. But we have something here. Christ is here. He's in you. He's the hope that we have not only today, not only in eternity, but forever. You know, uh, Brother George used to use a verse in 2 Timothy 2 and uh, no, 1 Timothy 4 and 18. And he used this verse as the reason why he didn't exercise. Bodily exercise profiteth little. Have you ever read that verse? Uh, sounds good if you don't want to get out and do anything. You don't want to exercise, you know. But it says, uh, <clears throat> for bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things having the promise of life that now is and that which is to come. The promise that we have now is Jesus is going to be with us even when we're not doing so well. And Jesus can deliver us right here. Now, he is the great physician. We've witnessed that in the last two weeks. But we're not righteous, and we're never going to get righteous. I want to look at one more verse in Luke chapter 12. Very familiar to you all, too. 15, excuse me, Luke chapter 15. There's three, three different parables in this chapter, but the parable of the two sons, often called the, the prodigal son, I believe these two sons are depicted as God's children. We know that in verse 12 it says, And the younger of them said to his father, Give me the portion of goods that fall to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living. I call him the rebellious son. Honestly, in my lifetime, that was me. That's how I feel. I look back in the days of my youth and where I was going and sowing my wild oats or whatever you want to call it. You know, we all have a phrase for it, but he was still a son, thanks to God's amazing grace. We have a picture of another son. The older brother stayed home and done it all right. Followed all orders that was given to him. Done everything his father asked for him. Was in the house of worship, you might say, if you read this story out and begin to understand it. And when his brother came home, the younger brother, the rebel brother, he wasn't very pleased, was he? The father was so glad to see him. You know, God brought him to the end of his way. There's no doubt in my mind. God brought me to the end of my way some many years ago. God brought this rebel son to the end of his way, and he returned home in the most humble manner you could imagine. I'm not worthy even to be called thy son. He's like that publican that smote upon his bread and said, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. But the older brother heard all the racket and all the noise and them preparing for the party. And I'm paraphrasing this and and we'll close on this. But he heard all that down there and he wouldn't even call him his brother. He didn't think he was good enough to come home. The the older brother was eat up with self-righteousness. He stayed home and he done it all right. He done what he should have done. And he shouldn't get credited above the other. You know, the gospel is somewhere in between that rebel and that older brother, if you want to get truthful about it. Because they're both sinners. You know, he was just as as defiled in one way as the rebel son was in the other. But we oftentimes look at things from a natural perspective. And we'll declare that rebel son to be a lot worse than the one that stayed home. And then come filled with self-righteousness. But I'm telling you right now, we're no better. That's why God said, or Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Judge not that you be not judged. The younger brother was not, I mean, the older brother was not judging himself against Christ. 
measuring himself against the Lord. He was measuring himself against his younger brother who didn't live the kind of life. He's, he even made the statement that he lived among harlots. No telling what else he did. It was all ungodly living. And yet he belonged to the father. The father brought him to the end of his course in life and he came home in a very humble way. But the righteous brother, the self-righteous brother, wanted no part of it. We need not to get there. Maybe you know someone. Maybe you have a relative, a friend that fell into that somewhere back in the past. That doesn't come to the house of the Lord. And, it, you know, maybe one day they show up. Don't, don't be better than they are. Humble yourselves in their presence and show them how much you love them. How much you care for them and how glad you are to see them back. You know, that the father met him on his journey back, the rebel son. He met him and wrapped him up in his arms and gave him a ring, put a coat upon him. I mean, this is how great our father in heaven is. Even when we walk contrary to him, he doesn't cast us off. We've been preserved in Jesus Christ. We may be chastened for the love, Lord chasteneth those that he loves. But we need to, to guard against self-righteousness. We're not going to have time to get back to the foundations, you know. But remember, there is no other foundation laid other than the foundation of Jesus Christ. All aspects of our life, from the marriage to the family to the workplace. We had more of that one time. And that's been some of the deterioration that we see in the country. We need to get back to that. The other thing is, declare, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And what I mean is, you don't need to bash people, but you need to stand up for God's truth. You know, one thing that's happened in the last 10 years is political correctness. And oftentimes we won't even say, thus saith the Lord, because we're afraid we might offend someone. You know, they offended Jesus up one side, down the other. Jesus said they hated me and they're going to hate you. And if you say, and you can do it in a loving and kind way, you really can. And not in a harsh and in a self-righteous way. Just say, this, this is... This is what the Bible says. This is what God declares. Stand up for God's truth. Uh, you know, uh, we, we know that one of the foundations is marriage, and, and marriage is constituted between a man and a woman, and uh, that's brought forth in the book of Genesis, and that's the end of that story. They, we, they were born either male or female. That's the end of that story. I mean, we need to go no further with it. God laid it out in simple language, did he? We need to stand for that truth. Not in a harsh and ungodly way, but in a kind and loving way. That we honor Christ above men in all things, in our lives. And if we let our light shine and others seeing our good works, I, th- I think it will go a long ways in helping people want, to, want some of what we have. Some of that, uh, you know, assurance. We have great assurance in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're sinners. And we're no better than those folks out there. They're not coming to the house of the Lord. I wish they'd come. And maybe one day the Lord will bring them in here. But until then, thank God for everything that you have. And understand that our righteousness is of, is of the blood of Jesus Christ and nothing else. May God bless you.